Thank you, Pastor Jeffrey. Good job, buddy. I love that song. So good to see you tonight. Great to have you out. Thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning in. Um, We really don't have very many people on the sides, but do you notice anything missing over on the sides? We are tape-free, baby. All right, so I'll repeat myself on Sunday, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you, we've tried since last March to listen to um, officials and also use a good dose of common sense. We've tried to be careful, and we want to continue to do so, but as of now, given Governor Lee's uh, orders last night and uh, certainly uh, Knox County Mayor Jacobs, we're grateful for these men, and we also want to say that uh, if you feel led to wear a mask at Grace, you can do that. Um, But if you feel led not to wear a mask at Grace, you just do that too, okay? Whether you're on the move or sitting down, we're fine with it, whatever you do. But just don't come up to me and tell me that, uh, you know, this is the right or the wrong. We're going to go with what people have asked of us. We've done it from day one. We're going to follow that protocol. And so uh, I, for one, am happy to be mask-free. So uh, I don't want one anymore. If you still want one, please feel free to wear it. No tape anywhere in the worship center. That being said, if you're out there and you say, well, I wanted to come Sunday, but I can't do it, I promise you there'll be open sections. For instance, nobody likes to sit over here near this big black distractosaurus arm. So that's a big hole right there. So you could make that your section right over there, I promise. Very few people sit in that little area right over there in the front. Um, Also, in a Baptist church, front pews are almost always open. So uh, you can come down and do that. But we're trying to use, again, trying to use a Romans 13 approach, and we're also trying to use the, the brain between our ears that the good Lord gave us. If you've chosen to get vaccinated, that's your decision. You can do that. If you've chosen not to, again, you can do that. Uh, I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer, but I do know that we want to get back to normal just as fast as possible. I do know that we have something super important and exciting to share with you coming up next week, next Wednesday night, immediately following this study on May the 5th. I will be bringing a a short, short business conference. If you've not read the Nashville Statement on Sexuality and Gender and Marriage, I'd encourage you, if we don't have any more hard copies, I'm not sure they were at the information desk. Karen, do you know if we have more hard copies? We do. We have more hard copies. It's also on your app. It's also on our website. Read up on that. We would like to attach that to our um, bylaws. And I'm reading a negative eight minutes, uh, if, if we could do that. Thank you. So um, we're wanting to attach that to our statement of faith by way of another layer of protection for our church to stay in line with biblical truth. We always want to be biblical in how we approach things and certainly marriage and family and gender and sexuality is something we want to be right in line with Scripture. And so please consider that. I've uh, got a couple other things we're going to share with you and then coming up in just a few weeks after that we'll be enjoying an ordination together for uh, Matt Mercer. And so we've got a lot of good things going on. I am super excited to finish The Good Shepherd this Sunday. And then I've got a very special Mother's Day message. I would say maybe, ladies, maybe you've never heard a Mother's Day message from this passage in your whole life. 
I don't know if you have. I certainly had not. But I want to encourage you. We want to uplift and inspire whether your moms or whether you had a mom or whether you, your mom is still alive or not. Wherever you land in that, we want to love you and honor you and encourage you and also see what God has to say about the heart of a marvelous mother. So we're going to look at that together in a couple of weeks. We've got a lot of really good things coming. We've got baby dedications this weekend in the second service. I think we have 10 little ones to dedicate. A lot of folks joined this past week in our Life at Grace class, and just a lot of great things happening at Grace. So I hope you'll be here. Um, I'm going to share some things next week in that conference that should be a major encouragement to you if you've been at Grace very long at all. should be a real encouragement to your heart. I have been so uplifted in recent days. In spite of a lot of challenges around us in this season, I've been so uplifted by uh, some things that have been going on here and lives that are being changed. And so I hope you'll be, be here with us. We're going to take tonight, I'm going to do my best to give you the whole thing, but we're going to do our study on Catholicism tonight. Now imagine trying to explain a 2,000-year-old church group in one night. But I'm going to do my best to give you the big picture. I, everything I'm going to say most of everything I'm going to say, there could be nuance and there could be slight exceptions. So please understand, when I'm trying to give you this, this story of the Catholic Church, it would kind of be like telling you, I want you to go through your entire family tree for me in the next 45 minutes. You, want, you might need to spend 30 minutes describing Crazy Uncle Buck, but that only leaves 15 minutes for the rest of your family who maybe aren't as crazy, or maybe most of your family's crazy, and Uncle Buck's the only normal one, right? So I, I, I'm going to try to explain this family, this Catholic church group, in a very short period of time. But I'm asking you for some consideration that I can't possibly tell us everything. We can't possibly dig in. So I don't want to get caught in weeds. I want to get the big picture. I want to get the 30,000-foot view, Okay. I'm going to ask us to uh, just spend a moment and pray together, and I'm going to ask for wisdom and clarity in sharing this, because this is some really good stuff to share with you tonight, and probably many of you uh, have Catholic folks in your life, maybe friends or family, and so let's pray about this and pray about our community and our state. Lord, we are so grateful to be here together. I'm just, uh, I'm so blown away by your goodness to us. And Lord, this community has been reeling lately. We've had a, a lot of folks that uh, it's just been some challenging days. But God, you are so good and you're the Prince of Peace. And I thank you for some of our, our local leaders. Lord, I'm, I'm particularly impressed by the DA and I'm grateful for the people of Knox County. I'm grateful for the families of this church and our, our school community. Lord, I'm thankful for lives being changed. I see transformation happening all around us. We have people uniting with the fellowship. We have people that you're leading to be a part. We were back last week. Uh, we're seeing week-over-week week growth, which is exciting in these days. You're taking care of us in every way. And as we enter this study tonight, it's not so much to highlight just how different we are, but there are some really important similarities there are some important foundational truths of the gospel that we share. So where we do that, let us celebrate the unity. Where we differ, let us do so 
in humility and care. And where things just simply are not in line with Scripture, let us be bold enough to say it. Give me courage to speak the truth without compromise. In a world where the culture wants to cancel anybody that goes against the left or an agenda that pushes a certain narrative, I just pray that we wouldn't land left nor right, but we would land square in your word, that the Scripture would be our guide that it would be our guardrails, and that we would say exactly what you would want us to say, no more, no less. So now we seek a balance of grace and truth in these moments we have in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's talk about the Catholic Church. Again, when I say Catholic, I mean universal. Specifically tonight, though, I'm going to also focus on the Roman Catholic Church, because that's different. We are, in some sense, all part of the Catholic Church, the universal church, the church big C of all believers through all the ages that truly love Christ and have received Him as Lord and Savior. But I'm not talking about that church. I'm talking about the specific Roman Catholic Church. One of the first facts that most of us learn about the Catholic Church is that they consider, Catholics consider Jesus' disciple Peter to be the first pope. Now I'm going to give a plug. I don't do this very often, but I'm going to give a plug. How many of you by show of hands have seen or are currently watching the series called The Chosen? Any of you? Good. Those of you that have seen it, what do you think? Positive? Positive? Very positive. So Cindy and I just finished season one, started season two. There are a few episodes in. If you've not seen this, I would highly, highly, highly recommend that you consider checking out The Chosen. It's a very interesting way. It's a crowdfunded, sort of donation-supported series. And heretofore, I will tell you, it's been extremely biblical. I'm, I'm really impressed. And so if you haven't gotten a chance to check it out, Cindy and I have been blessed. We want to watch it first, and then if we deem it appropriate, our kids to come in and see it. But I personally have been extremely impressed up to this point, and I think we're season two, uh, episode one or something in. But that being said, uh, Peter uh, plays pretty large in the series, and so Peter is considered by Catholics to be the first pope. Now, where do you think that comes from? Well, take your Bibles, if you have them with you, or if you can get them on your phone, go over with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. You'll remember when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? I'm reading now in verse 14. Matthew 16, 14. They said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus personalized the question, but who do you say that I am? So Simon Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Barjona means son of Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. This is the key verse. Verse 18, essentially, this this dogma is based upon what Jesus says next. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell or Hades shall not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
To the casual English reader, we would look at that phrase, and it might appear on first glance to say, and I say this to you, you are Peter, and on this rock, Peter, I will build my church. The problem is, that's just not what the original language reads. It's just not a proper understanding of the Greek language or the way that it's constructed. Really, Peter is more of a pebble. Jesus is saying that upon something, I'm going to build my church. But it's not a pebble, it's a rock. It's something greater than Peter. And so what could that mean? So essentially what we're trying to ask is, what is this? What is this rock? Upon this rock, I will build my church. Most conservative scholars who really understand the languages will come back and say that this actually points to the answer Peter gave. Thou art the Christ. I'm gonna, I grew up on King James. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The declaration that Peter is the chosen, anointed Son of God, the fact that Jesus is God in flesh, the Son of the living God, upon that faith declaration, I'm going to build my church. The reason we know that it's not Peter that Jesus will build his church upon is because in other places of the New Testament, through, for instance, the writings of Paul to the Ephesian believers, he would say, look, the foundation has already been laid. The foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. No other foundation can be laid than that which is laid. No other foundation. Now, the apostles and prophets were important for laying a faith foundation of truth, but Jesus is, in fact, both the foundation and the chief cornerstone. How you doing, Brother James? You feeling better? Good to see you, buddy. Glad you're here. Had a little episode on Sunday, but I'm glad you're here. Um, so here's the reality, church. The idea that, that God's church on earth was going to be built on a man is simply not biblical. No matter how old it is, the concept is simply not biblical. But the Catholics do come back to this declaration, and they do also look at Acts chapter 2 where you'll recall Peter preached at Pentecost. About 3,000 were saved. They were baptized. Peter was absolutely used in a phenomenal way by God for the founding and this early sustaining of the church in Jerusalem. Let's not undercut Peter's importance. Peter was very important in the founding of the early church, but Peter was never to be the foundation of the early church. So I hope that makes sense. Let's talk for just a minute about this papal line. I can't possibly go back and give you everything, but let me simply tell you that Gregory the Great is sort of the break. And when we look at Gregory, what we actually find is kind of the key figure in the papal lineage of, of making the Pope's office to be ruler over the whole church. Up to that point, for the first 500-ish years or so, supposedly from Peter, uh, the Pope had authority, but not quite all-encompassing authority. With Pope Gregory the Great, and part of the reason he's called the Great, is that his, the authority of the papal office expanded rather rapidly. In fact, to date, and the reason I'm putting a greater than is because history sometimes overlaps popes. Sometimes there was contention. Remember, popes were elected by vote, they were voted in, and so as they are to this day, and it's a very interesting system that they use. Maybe you remember that, where the white smoke or the black smoke would come out at the Vatican. But to, the, to date, there have been over 
260 popes. Supposedly, those popes are in a spiritual lineage, not a genetic lineage, but a spiritual lineage back to Peter. The reality, though, is that in time you had a tremendous amount of power, and I know you'll be shocked to hear this, politics, money, and other things that would lead to one pope maybe being chosen, one candidate for pope being chosen over another. So one of the higher archbishops or something. That being said, though, uh, the papal lineage is a very, very interesting thing. And we'll talk a little bit more about the pope's authority according to the Catholic Church in a moment. Let me give you a few statistics, if I could. Presently, there are approximately, in name, 1.2 billion Catholics worldwide. In the United States, we have approximately 69 million. Now again, in name, in name, that's like saying there are, oh, I think we're at 14.9 or 15 million Southern Baptists. But on any, any given Sunday, the FBI and Homeland Security couldn't find 10 million of them. So to say, you know, that there are 69 million Catholics in the U.S. is a highly inflated picture. I will say this, in the USA, we have approximately, uh, which that's kind of approximately, of those affiliated with Christianity, you have approximately 49% of those who claim Christianity, or a, what we're going we're gonna to put Catholic under the Christian umbrella. Some Catholics would not do that. Some Catholics would say, I'm not Christian, I'm Catholic. That would be a misunderstanding of their, their foundation, though. But 49% uh, Protestant, 23% would be Catholic, okay? So, you definitely have in our country far more double percentage of Protestants to Catholics, 49% to 23%. And so that, that's pretty interesting. That would be radically different if we went to some other parts of the world. So let's talk about their foundational understanding of Scripture. So in, again, a general sweep of Catholicism, the Scriptures teach, according to Catholics, without error, the truth needed for our salvation. Is that the same then as inerrancy? No. The Catholic Church typically has not made very clear declaration of inerrancy the way it's currently understood and defined, is that the Bible is without error and it is incapable of error. But the, the real difference for us is here. According to Roman Catholicism, Scripture must be interpreted within the tradition of the church. The only way you and I can possibly understand the Bible is to come through the church. I was in a debate once with a, with a um, divinity professor from um, uh, Duke. And in that uh, back and forth, he said very adamantly that um, the Scripture should be taken out of the hands of all people that aren't properly trained and essentially clergy and all of that, that we should remove it. Well, the argument in some periods of the Catholic Church were that the Scripture should never be put in the hands of the people. The Scripture should never, because they don't know what to do with it. Only the, the trained should be able to do it, right? There's a real huge problem with that, and that's what you end up with is a mass or a service in the Catholic Church, say in Latin, but nobody speaks Latin. 
Many times what you actually got was a service that the priest was speaking in Latin and he himself didn't quite understand the language. And so you had a lot of sound, but you had very little understanding. Do you realize this happens in the Muslim faith today? Because the language of Allah is actually to be Arabic. You could say prayers in Arabic or read the only true Quran in Arabic, but you may not read with understanding. The Bible says from prophets like Ezra, from scribes, uh, from leaders like Nehemiah in the New Testament, many times over from Paul's pen, we must read with understanding. We must, Jesus would say, pray with understanding, not vain repetition. And so it's very interesting. Let me see if I can show you in, in a visual. I'm going to pretend that my workbook here is uh, the Catholic Church. Okay? This is the Bible, of course. In our belief, typical Protestant belief, I'll even be more specific, in Baptistic belief, the foundation of our faith is, of course, God. But what we know about God, we have received from this propositional revelation, the closed canon, Genesis to Revelation, 66 books, 39 old, 27 new. This is called the Bible. And everything we know of God and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit, we take from this book. And so from this, from Jesus, the living word and the written word, from the scripture, then the church comes here. The church comes, and then you can add, you know, the individual members of the church and anything else you'd like. In Catholicism, that would not be accurate. In Catholicism, what you actually start with would be the tradition of the church. And if this is not this way, at least it's this way. I've had this, I had a long discussion with a Catholic priest friend of mine about this one day. And I was using salt and pepper shakers and all kinds of things on the table trying to say, well, this is the way I understand it. And he said, well, you're saying tradition and then the, the Bible. He said, I kind of like this. And so he put them equal. Well, folks, that's still a problem. Do you understand why that's a problem? You got fallible men and women leading this thing. You got a perfect God that's spoken here. And so you can't have equal authority, nor can you have tradition as your foundation, which in practice is actually more accurate. You can't have tradition as your foundation and then come to the Bible. That's the very thing that the Pharisees were doing that Jesus spoke against so frequently. You're starting in your tradition. You're tithing your mint and your cumin, and you're doing all of these things, but you've left, you've left Ephesians your first love. You've left Christ. You've, you've left the weightier matters. And so what we have is that in the Catholic understanding, Scripture must be interpreted within the tradition. This is a huge word. The tradition of the church. And I say no. And most Protestants say no. In fact, you can give a man a Bible. One of the reasons I love our Gideons so much and what they do is you can give a man a Bible. And that Bible... The Word of God, or if somebody spoke those words to him, or he heard those words, you can give him biblical truth, and if he has the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is enlightening him, leading him, drawing him. God the Father's drawing him. The Holy Spirit's enlightening him. Guess what? He can be a brother in Christ too. He has everything he needs to be born again. The Word of God, the truth of God, the moving of the Holy Spirit, the drawing of the Father, the truth of Christ, he has everything he needs to be saved. Not really in the Catholic understanding of that, okay? So it's different. The, also, the Bible is somewhat different, okay? And let's just look at that real quick. The canon in the, 
a Roman Catholic Church would include not 39 books of the Old Testament, as I stated, so you'd go from Genesis to Malachi in our Bible, but the canon of the Catholic Church actually includes what's called deuterocanonical books, second canon, deutero, second, like Deuteronomy, second law, restating of the law, like a restatement from Exodus. So deuterocanonical books, or we also know that as the Apocrypha, the Apocrypha. And then the same 27 books of the New Testament. So, now, many within Roman Catholicism would say, well, yes, that's part of our Bible, but we don't actually look at some of those books with the same authority. Let me see if I can explain that a little bit better. The Apocrypha is the books considered part of the Old Testament in Catholic or Orthodox theology, but not in Protestant theology. Some of that would be First uh, and Second Maccabees, Wisdom of Solomon. There are some other books. Um, they're called Second Canon, Deuterocanonical in, in Catholic theology. So the argument would be made, yes, they're in the Bible, yes, they're important, but they're not quite on the same level as Scripture. But here's the problem I have with that. If you actually study Catholic liturgy, Catholic orders of worship, many times books like First and Second Maccabees will be included in the homily. They'll be included in the Mass. They'll be included in the prayers. They'll be included in the instruction. And so to argue that they really don't have the same authority, you have to slow down and say, well, wait a minute. Wait just a minute. Why are they there? Why not print them separately, separate them, pull them out? One thing that most folks uh, that, that grew up in the South, like myself, who grew up on the, the King James Bible, who was told, that's your 1611 authorized version, son. Okay, thank you very much. We weren't told a couple of things. We weren't told that I wasn't actually holding a 1611, that I was holding a 1738, 39, or some version thereafter. And I wasn't told that the 1611 King James Bible also contains the Apocrypha. You find a 1611 King James Bible you look between the Old and the New Testament as you know it today, and what you'll also find is more of this. Now, again, I'm not trying to tell you that King James was Catholic. Remember, King James branched away from, uh, earlier than that, King Henry branched away from the Catholic Church. Why? He wanted to be married again. And so he becomes the head of the church. Later, King James would become head of the church. And we'll talk more about the creation of all of that later. But let me show you the list. And I, this could be hard to read. But you can at least see maybe in blue right there. I don't know if you guys can read that. Some of these extra books that are considered deuterocanonical books. Okay? So just a little bit different. The Greek Old Testament actually contains even more. But we won't talk about Orthodox Church tonight. We'll wait for that. What would be similar? What would be the same? Let's look at their understanding of God, the Catholic Church understanding of God. God is the one creator and Lord of all, existing eternally as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Does anybody in the room have a problem with that? Man, I hope not. That's true. That's just a very accurate, concise statement that God is creator by saying, Lord, he's master, he's sustainer, and he's Trinitarian. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That sets this God apart from all other gods. No. Watch. I want to make sure I'm clear on something. Uh, I'll use the Anglicized ver Well, I won't do that. I'll use, I'll use the Hebrew. 
In Hebrew, we had no vowels. So what name of God is that? Introduced to Moses in Exodus 3.14. How do you say that? Yahweh. We have this misunderstanding, folks. And some in current Catholic leadership are saying this. Follow this. Not true. Not true. We we had this discussion recently, actually. Some in Baptist circles are saying this. It's not true. The Jehovah, Yahweh, let me show you. You see how we get Jehovah? Y becomes J, H comes down. You add the vowels. W becomes V as we etymologically follow this. H is H. That's where you get Jehovah. Jehovah's not in the Bible. Sorry, Jehovah's Witnesses, the name is never in the Bible. The reality is it's Yahweh. He is not Allah. Allah is not Father. Allah is not Son. Well, Allah is Father. Allah is not Son. Allah is not Holy Spirit. So if somebody tells you, well, it's the same God, different name. Wrong. Names matter. You could say Bobby. When my father was alive, three of us would answer. The Father, the Son, and little Bo. Little Bobby, not the Holy Spirit. (laughs) That would be creepy. Three of us would answer. We're not the same. So just because you say, yeah, but come on, pastor. Now let's be honest. These are just different names of God. Wrong. Because in the days of Elijah, they would have said, Baal is God. And Elijah said, no, he's not. He doesn't exist. And you say, well, pastor, that's kind of bold. You're going to get in trouble. The word of God is clear. God is God. Jehovah is God. God has chosen to reveal himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Muhammad is not his last and greatest prophet. And Jesus is not merely a prophet. He is a prophet. He is priest and he is king because he is God. When you see Jesus, you see God. When you see the Holy Spirit, you see God. I hope that's clear. But for our Catholic friends, we agree. We agree God is the God of Scripture. What about Jesus? Let's track these one at a time. Is he the eternal Son of God incarnate? Meaning, has he always been? Check. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? He was in the beginning with God, and nothing was made that was made except through him. We we find not only his power and preeminence there, but when we look at Colossians and many other places, Jesus is the eternal Son in garment. Is Jesus fully God and fully man? So Jesus, we're saying, is not 50-50. He's 100-100. True or false? That's a good one. That's true. Jesus is conceived and born of the Virgin Mary. True or false? Absolutely true. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. True. Substitutionary atonement, penal substitutionary atonement, a sacrifice. Jesus rose bodily from the grave. True or false? Absolutely true. There are heresies that say he only seemed to rise or he only appeared to die. Jesus ascended into heaven. Jesus will come again in glory to judge us all. True. 
true. He will. Now, of course, there are different judgments. Bema, there's great white throne. However, Jesus is judge. So, again, sometimes we think, wow, you know, uh, Roman Catholicism is so foreign to our understanding of Christianity. Not exactly. Let's be careful when we say things like that because the, the basic understanding of Jesus is the same. Now, we do have an issue, and it's going to come up on the next slide. Salvation. True or false, Christ died as a substitutionary, I already gave it away, a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Absolutely true. Read the next one carefully. God, by his grace, infuses a supernatural gift of faith in Christ in those who are baptized, which is maintained by doing works of love and receiving and we're going to unpack all those, but true or false? Absolutely, unequivocally false. You've just substituted a gospel by grace through faith in Christ alone with grace plus a whole lot of works. Grace plus anything is not the gospel. Christ, Christ alone, the finished work, to tell us die, he is the only way. So we, we need to then unpack that. Can you think of a biblical example where someone wasn't baptized and went to be with the Lord? Thief on the cross. Baptism's not a requisite for salvation. It's an important step of obedience after salvation, maintained by doing works of love and receiving penance. Well, no, you can't maintain anything. That's not at all what Paul meant by working out your salvation with fear and trembling. The idea is there is for all of us a progressive sanctification. When you come to Jesus, you're a baby in the faith. Yes, you're to grow. And through that, by the Holy Spirit, God enables you to produce fruit and more fruit and much fruit and fruit that remains. And there should be evidence. But it is not faith plus, what's the next word? Works. That is Wrong. Can I tell you what it is? Watch. This is pretty cool. This is why we have a smart board. It's faith works. You see the difference? Biblical faith works. Biblical faith, all, if you live long enough, it always manifests itself. You can't help it. You can't hide a light under a bushel. You put it on a lampstand. You can't help but shine. Jesus is going to ooze out if you really have him. But it may work in, it may manifest in different ways and to varying degrees in different people. But it's not you maintaining anything. And penance and Eucharist are not the keys to this. So uh, let me see if I've got it. I think I do. Oh, yeah, I've got it. Let's see if we can get to it. Let's keep moving. What is Eucharist? Eucharyo means thanksgiving from the Greek, Eucharist. It's a term of choice in liturgical churches for communion or what we most often call the Lord's Supper. Communion, the Lord's Supper, Eucharist. We're talking about the same thing at one level. But it's very, very different at another level. And I'm going to explain the difference in just a moment. I'll explain exactly how it's different. After death, the souls of the wicked at death are immediately consigned to eternal punishment in hell. The souls of the faithful go to heaven either immediately or, and this is real important, or, oh, that's an eraser. i got to go back to this. Or 
if imperfectly purified, this really gets to me, (laughs) in this life, they go to heaven after purgatory. Everybody heard of purgatory? Okay. So the, the, the rub I have here, and even with some of my Catholic friends, I have a real rub. Do you believe in the full sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ or not? When Jesus said, it is finished, paid in full, did he mean it or was he kidding? Do we actually add to our salvation through penance and Eucharist and maintenance of good works of love and charity and those things? There's no way that if Christ was perfect and his sacrifice was perfect that you've been imperfectly purified. The Bible knows of no such thing as partial salvation. That's why concepts of second blessing, we'll talk about that when we get to some of our friends in in the more um, Pentecostal and charismatic group of which I'm quite familiar. But the concepts of, of partial blessing, having part of yourself saved, getting part of the Holy Spirit, completely false because the Holy Spirit is a person and you don't divide people. And so um, the idea here is that there's this, this holding place. Let me, if I can, just give you something real quick. Purgatory, according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, is a place or condition of temporal punishment for those who, after departing this life, are not entirely free from certain faults. They have not exactly paid the satisfaction of their transgressions. Well, now, wait a minute. Do I pay for my transgressions, or has Jesus already paid for my transgressions? This is the quintessential do versus done question, right? According to Romans 5.8, Jesus died to pay the penalty for all our sin. According to Isaiah 53.5, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And by his wounds we're healed. There's scripture after scripture after scripture that gives credence to the fact that Jesus saves us from A to Z, from Alpha to Omega, to the uttermost. One of the Catholic scriptures used to say there's purgatory is 1 Corinthians 3.15. It says, if it is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping the flames. It's kind of this idea that he has to go through this flame of purging even after death. That if our works are of good quality, gold and silver and costly stones, we go through unharmed. But if we have wood, hay, and stubble, then actually those things are consumed by fire and there's not going to be any reward. Now, the Bible doesn't say here that believers pass through the fire. It says their works pass through the fire. What that means is this. I could be a genuine Christian but I'm not actually doing anything of eternal value for the Lord. I'm really not making eternal investment. So I might do some good things, but there's no eternal investment. And so those things are purged away. Those things are purged away. And I get to go be with the Lord, but I don't get all of the heavenly reward by Christ. It does not say that I myself will have to go through a purging or a fiery process. So the idea of purgatory often attaches itself to things like prayer for the dead. Remember we talked about a few weeks ago indulgences. Pay enough money and grandma gets 10,000 years off because she was mean as a rattlesnake. Meritorious works on behalf of the dead. And, And all of those things associated. Mormonism bumps up against this, by the way. But we have this as a foreign concept to Scripture. So this idea, the idea of purgatory, simply is not in our Bibles. So again, just to restate, 
a state or place where we go after death, we get any sin and purity removed before we go to heaven. It, in the Catholic Church, it's generally regarded as temporal punishment, um, not so regarded in the Orthodox and Anglican churches. When we get there, I'll explain. Most Protestants do not believe in purgatory, but an immediate uh, purging, purgation of sin at death. I actually uh, don't even like the way that's written exactly. This is the way a lot of Protestants talk about it, immediate purging, and I understand that. They're saying, okay, um, now you're free from sin and there'll never be any sin. I actually think when we trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior, sin, past, present, and future is covered. doesn't mean we're not going to sin, but we do not have to continue in sin that grace may abound. And so I do believe that Jesus purges us of sin, but of course we're still influenced by its power. We're still influenced by its presence, although we're no longer influenced by its penalty. One day we're free from both the power and the presence and the penalty of sin. So I guess in that regard, I do understand it. I just prefer to say it's at salvation that Jesus takes care of our sin issue. He took care of it at Calvary. It's applied at salvation. So the church, according to Catholicism, is the mystical body of Christ, established by Christ with the Bishop of Rome. He's also known as the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, who may at times pronounce dogma. And dogma is doctrine required of all the members infallibly as its earthly head. Now, what, now again, let's talk about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Same concept. The president or the head of the LDS Church can proclaim dogma. That becomes part of the church. For instance... For most of the Mormon church in its history, um, uh, an African-American man could not be, uh, become part of the priesthood. That changed when the cultural shifts happened. For much of the early Mormon church, uh, certainly its founders, certainly men like Brigham Young, the second president, Lorenzo Snow, the fifth president, um, polygamy was taught. That's why it's only still around in fundamentalist Mormonism. So there's a lot of similarity there. The problem with this, of course, is when you look at papal dogma, it changes over the years. The current pope that's in today, quite a bit more liberal than his predecessor, Pope John Paul II. Well, now, wait a minute. Is God changing his mind about these issues? You speak for God. You're God's man. You're the head of the visible church on earth, i.e., according to the Roman Catholic system. Is God changing his mind? Is God mutable or immutable? The Bible teaches that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, so he's immutable, unchanging. But Catholic dogma through the Bishop of Rome, i.e. the Pope, says whatever we say goes. That is a slippery slope if ever there has been one. And so we would argue, no, that's certainly not true. And, and we have an image here of, of Pope Francis um, and, and there have been quite a few changes within Catholic dogma in recent years. But the church, beyond the papal authority, is united. It's one. It's sacred or holy. It's worldwide. Again, that just means Catholic. It's a community through the succession of bishops whose ordination goes back to the apostles. So it's apostolic. Those would be part of the, the sayings of the Catholic church. Christians not in communion with the Catholic Church, that would be you and me if you're not Catholic today. Christians not in communion with the Catholic Church are called separated brethren. So there's an acknowledgement that there's a kinship 
but we're not under the authority of the Catholic Church. Now, this is where it gets super interesting, and then I'm going to let you go. But I promised myself I was going to get through it, so I'm going to get through it. Can you hang for five more minutes or so? Okay. If you have to use the bathroom, squeeze and hold. Baptism, <laughs> baptism removes original sin. True or false? Absolutely false. Nowhere in the Bible do we find this. It's absolutely false. So, um, again, pedobaptism is normally what's talked about. I think I mistakenly said something about that comes to where we get the word podiatrist. That's weird. No, that's a foot doctor. It's where we get pediatrician, like a, a child's doctor. So, pediatric. So, pedobaptism is most often practiced in the Catholic Church, though adults, teenagers, adults are baptized, some even by immersion. But baptism and the Typical understanding of Roman Catholicism actually removes original sin. So we want to get rid of that quickly. That's why it's very important for a baby, a Catholic baby, to be baptized. And we put him into the family of the Catholic Church because it's a covenant. I've already explained that. I'll not repeat myself. In the Eucharist, in the Lord's Supper, this is really important. It's called transubstantiation. The elements of the substances... Uh, the bread and the wine are changed into Jesus' body and blood. I'll tell you a really interesting story about that next week in Orthodox theology. But they believe that um, the bread becomes the body and the wine becomes the blood. That happens at a particular moment. There's a ceremony in Mass where all of that happens. Some of you have witnessed that. I've been in a number of Catholic churches in different parts of the world. And you can observe that when the, the transformation or the transubstantiation across substances, transubstantiation, is supposed to have occurred. Uh, what that means is that if the, the, the priest and the, the helpers situating and preparing the altar pour a lot of wine and a lot of people don't show up, somebody's got to finish it. True story, because you can't leave the blood of Christ unconsumed. Sometimes you'll find priests serving back and forth at the conclusion of Mass. Back and forth, back and forth, until the bread and the cup are consumed. Until it's completely gone. Again, I'll tell you a fascinating story about that uh, next week, I think. All right, so that's an interesting belief. We do not, in um, Baptist life, believe that the bread and wine change. We believe that they are, of course, symbolic this is a real important differentiator. Immaculate conception. We misunderstand that most often as Protestants. We don't understand what it means. But Mary, according to the Catholic Church, was conceived by her mother immaculately. Not like Jesus. Not, that's not what that means, okay? Um, because we call that the incarnation. That's different. Immaculate conception is the idea that Mother Mary did not have original sin in her when she was born. But she remained a virgin, per, virgin perpetually and was assumed bodily into heaven. I'm going to break that three, those three propositions I'm going to break apart. I'm going to break that one and that one. So the first one, she was conceived by her mother immaculately. One major problem with that. The Bible nowhere says that. And that seems to be attempting to protect the sinless nature of Christ. The problem with that is, what about Mary's mother? What about Mary's mother's mother? And Mary's mother's mother's mother? You follow me? You have what we call in logic the problem of infinite regress. You can't solve it. So to say Mary was born of original sin, now you have to take Romans 5 and throw it out of your Bible that says we're all born in Adam. You see, sin through the federal headship of Adam passes on. 
generation to generation, through Adam. Ladies, this is something very interesting for you. Original sin is not said to pass mother to child, but father to child. Federal headship, if we study that theologically, there's only one that's ever been born that had a human mama and a divine daddy who didn't have the taint of original sin passed to him. His name is Jesus Christ. Mary does not need to be immaculate, conceived without original sin, to be the mother of God, to be the mother of the incarnate Christ. The idea that she remained a virgin perpetually, what's the biblical problem with that argument? She had a bunch of other youngins. Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters, same mama, different daddy. It's very clear from the Bible that Jesus had a multiplicity of siblings. And she was assumed bodily into heaven. What's the problem with that? Not one shred of scripture that says so. So again, what happens? Remember what this is. Tradition, Bible. This becomes your foundation. And in practice, let me tell you what this looks like. Let me, let me show you this and we're done. She's the mother of the church. She's considered an object of devotion and veneration. Now, now this is not supposed to be worship. But in practice, in practice, I've been all over the world. I've, I've done a lot of church planning in different places. And on the Amazon, what's so interesting where the Catholic church is going in, village after village after village, you have one big church there until the Protestants come along, and it's the Catholic, or one small church there, and it's the Catholic church. And you'll have this mammoth image of Mary, this statue of Mary. And you have a little tiny baby Jesus. And in practice, what has happened in some pockets of Roman Catholicism is that while there's this notion that Mary is not worshipped in practice, listen, am I right? She's, she's really worshipped. She's worshipped. And let me tell you why. I ask again some Catholic friends, why would you go through Mary? And they said, well, wait a minute. If I wanted to get to you, don't you think a good thing to do would be to get to your mama? And then if I got to your mama, I get to you. And if I get to you, then I can get to your daddy. So I'm trying to get to the father. And so the best way to get to the father is go through the mama to the son to the daddy. The problem is the Bible's very clear. All of us have access equally to Jesus, who is God. So what you're doing in this concept is you're taking a step away from Jesus and a step away from God the Father and you're actually saying, well, if I pray to or through Mary, then I get to Jesus, then I get to God. That's just not what we need to do. The same is true with the saints. There's a misunderstanding in Roman Catholicism that says certain people that do certain things and, and perform certain miracles are saints. The Bible actually says that every single man, woman, boy, and girl that has truly trusted Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior is a saint. Well, how do you know that? Read every entrance to Paul's letters. To the saints of Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Thessalonica. To the saints, to the saints, to the saints. That many Catholics already? No. Saint only means sanctified one, set apart one. When you come to Jesus, you get set apart. In the world and not of the world. You are a saint. Congratulations. Now you got to go live like it. Don't go living like the devil now. Come on. All right, where are we at? Last slide. About one-fourth of, uh, of current Roman Catholics are doctrinally conservative, which is pretty good. 
I have made this comment, and I'll repeat this comment. We have more in common with a conservative Catholic than we do a liberal Baptist. Do you hear that? We have more in common theologically and practically with a conservative Catholic than we do a liberal Baptist. So always be careful with your labels. And many priests and members do tend to accept liberal pluralistic beliefs contrary to church teaching. Folks, listen, I could say that about pretty much a lot of these. A lot of these. Um, Many. Because about three-fourths would align themselves um, left of center, if you will. So there was a, a pretty large movement throughout the 20th century and many from some very well-known Catholic theologians, and essentially universalism became a really leading teaching. And that essentially says we're all part of God's family. You pray to Allah. You pray to Buddha. You guys love Jesus. You pray over here. You understand that's universalism. Anything goes, just have faith. Faith in faith, faith in the tree, faith in the bird. Not all Catholics, but some bought into this dogma to kind of say we're all in the brotherhood. Again, I hope you go back a few slides. The problem with that is the God of the Bible has clearly identified himself. He's not stuttered or stammered. And so I think one of the things we have to do is is come to this conclusion, and this is where we'll go next week. Some Catholics that I know, and maybe some that you know, really love Jesus, really love the Lord, but they are within a system that has some things that are different than what our Bible teaches. Some Catholics do not know Jesus as their Lord and their Savior, and they are putting their faith in many other things. But I'm never going to take a broad brush and say all Catholics here and all Catholics there, and I hope folks won't do that about Baptists. Because some people that say, yeah, I'm born and bred, I'm a Baptist. Well, you act like the devil. And so, I want to be careful. And I do think we have a wonderful opportunity. If you have Catholic friends and Catholic family, there's a wonderful opportunity to say, let's go back to the Bible. What does God's Word say? And how can we see the truth, not the tradition? Stand with me. We're done. 7.29, don't get used to being let out early. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the night. Thank you for the lesson. I know I had to go fast, but I pray that it's been helpful to some. And I pray, Lord, that we would use this as an opportunity to open conversations with those around us, to share the truth of the gospel, and that it's not anything we do, but all of what Christ has done. We love you. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.